Hello and welcome to episode number 25 of Earth Repair Radio. Wait a minute. You mean Roman and Byzantine era cisterns are working just as well today? And, you know, people are digging them up all the time. Like, that's my fantasy. So their whole lush courtyard garden was irrigated just with the water coming from the apartment unit's air conditioners. And it's like, why isn't everybody doing this? And the guy there is like, yeah, why isn't everybody doing this? He was like, you know, explodes. His mind explodes. He's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. It's so easy. It's so simple. It makes so much sense. You can have a thriving society on two and a half inches of rain a year. The drier you are, the more sense it makes. Hello, I'm your host, Andrew Milson, and today we've got a great show for you. Our guest today is Brad Lancaster, author of the award-winning Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, Volumes 1 and 2. Brad's whole adult life has been dedicated to showing the abundance of the world through rainwater harvesting and permaculture. The epicenter of his work is in his home community of Tucson, Arizona, although his work has taken him all over the planet. This podcast is in celebration of the release of the new editions of both of his books, as well as the release of a new online rainwater harvesting course featuring Brad's work. So please see the show notes for details and enjoy this interview with Brad Lancaster. Hey, how you doing, Brad? Good, doing great. Good, you staying cool down there in Tucson? Well, thanks to uh, all the vegetation that is freely irrigated by uh, the rainfall, um, we've got some nice shade and cooling going with that, so we're much better off than those not harvesting the abundance around us. Nice. What's the, what's the high today down there? Uh, today is probably going to be 103, 105. Yesterday was 110 degrees okay. Fahrenheit. Yeah. A little, little chilly. A little chilly. Yeah. 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 Well, um, it's so nice to talk to you. I mean, the amazing thing, I, I feel really blessed because, you know, my my permaculture design course I took in 1996 down in Tucson, uh, you were one of our guest instructors and we got to tour your budding permaculture site, your newly planted street trees and everything like that. And so, you know, here we are. Uh, just about 25 years after you had begun your project. And um, I just feel really blessed to have gotten to uh, see it in its infancy and having gotten to check in on it along the way. And so I've really learned a lot myself about just seeing the evolution of your site and your work. So um, so I'm really happy. I'm not, we're not going to have this interview to talk about your amazing books the whole time. We're not going to use this interview to talk about the uh, rainwater harvesting online course that uh, I'm developing with with you. And uh, we really want to hear the nitty gritty. We want to hear what makes your work so potent. I've seen the how you've catalyzed this rainwater harvesting movement in Tucson, right? Because I was there when you first started. Now I can go around your neighborhood and I see that it has just spread virally. So I'm really interested in in talking about how you've catalyzed community action around rainwater harvesting and all the associated benefits um, that you've done over the last quarter century. Okay. Well, I think a lot of it comes down to uh, enabling people to see and just enabling ourselves to see to begin with the inherent potential that is already everywhere okay um and uh so here in tucson we uh we had killed our river um from over pumping and extracting groundwater and diverting water out of the river uh and we killed the riparian forest so uh things were bleak in that sense and we'd become dependent on importing colorado river water uh basically taking that water from others to uh meet our growing water needs okay so um, people were just looking at, well, how do we get more water to suit our ever-growing need for water, okay? But everyone was ignoring the free water that was already at hand, the water falling from the sky. So uh, a big eureka moment for me is when I did some simple calculations and realized, what? More rain falls on Tucson in a year than the entire community and all its population 
consumes of city water in a year. So that was a slap in the face wake up call of, wow, we actually have all that we need falling for free from the sky if we can recognize it and start managing it in a way that uh, it sticks around. Um, it cycles through myriad life forms like the planetary hydrologic cycle. It's not just a use it once, send it down the drain, it's gone. So uh, it was seeing that potential, and then it was tapping into, well, how does this planet deal with a limited amount of water? And yet this planet never runs out of water. And only 1% of the, about more or less 1% of the fresh water of the water on this planet is fresh and available, you know, not salty or locked up deep underground or in glaciers. So, uh, but yet the planet doesn't run out of fresh water. So it's like, wow, it just cycles it numerous times in ways that the water quality is steadily improved or at least stays the same. So we just thought, well, how could we do likewise? And that, that's been the motivator. Um, and then, uh, to start to create demonstration sites where people can see it happening. So it's not just an idea. So as you mentioned, what we've done along the streets, harvesting street runoff to use the street runoff to grow street trees that shade and grow and uh, shelter the streets, reducing flooding at the same time, all that's juicy stuff. I got inspired by uh, this talk um, by Max Lindiger. He was a permaculture teacher based out of Australia. And he... Um, and of course, I was taking with him teaching. He told us a story about how he was walking in the Swiss Alps with his around the uh, the, the old family village with his grandfather. And his grandfather pointed to the foothills where they were cutting down the forest and building all these condos. And the grandfather said to Max, "You know, that's where we got our food and many of our needs met during the war. So where are we going to get?" that which we need in the next catastrophe. And then Max turned to us in the class and he said, so where are your foothills forests? Where are your uh, spots of resilience, natural resilience? Uh, what will you rely upon? And I got to thinking and uh, I realized, well, I'm nowhere near the foothills. I'm in central Tucson in a very urban environment. Uh, so what are the commons? What's the public land? And at first, I didn't think there was any. And then I looked deeper and I realized, oh, that sidewalk area along the street and the streets themselves, that's public land. That's common land. But all too often, we forget that because we call it, oh, it, city land. Well, that's public land. You know, that's all of ours. So we as citizens can help determine how we use that. So that was part of it. We also realized that there was the school grounds and whatnot, um, church grounds. So there is available land. So, uh, but unlike what Max Lindiger's grandfather experienced of an intact forest and all that, this was just bladed sterility. There was nothing. It was just sun-baked, bladed, bare dirt. So um, we started talking to our neighbors and we asked, hey, what do we all want? And everyone wanted, everyone wanted more life, more interaction. So we organized as a neighborhood um, an annual tree planting project. And... Uh, but instead of just getting any old trees, because we'd learned that many trees had died in the past that had been planted, exotic trees, we decided to grow um, food-bearing native trees, because they're the best adapted to the area. And that worked great, okay? Uh, it, but unfortunately, the city's tree service that offered subsidized trees didn't offer any natives. So we, uh, we asked with their permission that we could create our own list. And they said, yeah, we'll do it as a pilot project. So we went forward and did so. Um, and then we realized in short order that if we really wanted these trees to grow, they needed more water. And we didn't want to be dependent on using city water to water those trees. So we initially planted the trees in these shallow basins that would capture direct rainfall. But we were missing the boat. We were missing the vast amount of water, which is the water that would flow down the streets. So we decided to create bigger basins, lower than the street, so we could then cut the street curb and direct street runoff from street to street tree, and therefore freely irrigate street trees with that runoff. That's when things really started to improve and take off. Um, but it was illegal at the time to cut street curbs. 
So uh, we did the work on uh, Sunday mornings when no one from the city was watching. And we started at the top of the watershed where there was the least amount of water, least chance of failure. Um, and uh, we, we saw what worked and what didn't. We fixed that which didn't. And then when we got it all working good, we moved further downstream. And uh, it worked fantastic. The vegetation took off in its growth. Neighbors were really excited, wanted to do likewise. But it was illegal, so we approached the city and said, hey, can we legalize this? Had many meetings. It took uh, years, uh, three years, <laughs> but eventually it was legalized. And now it's not just legalized, it's incentivized with rebates and mandated a new city road construction. So how did that happen? Well, in those meetings, um, what was key is we did not approach the meeting with the city officials saying, hey, we want this change, make it happen. Instead, we approached the city and we said, what are your issues? What are your problems along neighborhood streets? And they said, well, we've got um, excessive flooding. We've got excessive uh, heat and uh, heat island effect and heat-related illness in the hot months. Uh, we have a lot of litter, a lot of crime. We've got potholes, uh, so the streets are falling apart. Um, so we said, okay, great. Um, we, we think we could help you with those things. So what if we took water off the street to reduce the flooding of the street? That would lengthen the life of the, of the asphalt in the street. What if we could shade the street and cool temperatures so the asphalt would last longer and we'd have less heat-related illnesses of people living along those streets? And what if we got more neighbors involved and citizens involved so we've got more people meeting one another, getting to know one another, building community, and uh, uh, more friendly eyes on the street. That could probably drop crime. So, uh, And we had already experienced all this in our little demonstration site. So they became receptive, and we and said, okay, we're willing to give it a go. So, so in a sense, one of the things that you told them was, we can save you money. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was huge. Right. <laughs> yeah. Save money. Save, save uh, um, human resources, yeah, and that that opened their their eyes and ears. So nice. Um, and th we definitely had resistance. Uh, the a number of the traffic engineers were fearful that uh, water would migrate under the asphalt and undermine the street. Um, but we've had no problems with that. And since that was communicated, that fear, that concern of theirs, we tweaked the design of the street side water harvesting basins. So we slope the basins away from the street to direct more of the infiltrating runoff uh, further from the street into the soil. And then we say it's super important that we plant vegetation and replant if anything dies out so we have these living pumps of vegetation that draw the water up through their root network and release surplus through their leaf, leaf system. So instead of water just sticking around where you don't want it, you've got these life forms utilizing the water and taking it away from the areas where you don't want it. Um, so uh, when concerns were expressed and we addressed them um, and then actually found strategies that performed even previously unintended benefits, uh, people got more and more into it. And uh, yeah, and, and that then enabled the city to get to the point that they mandate now mandate uh, street runoff water harvesting and all new road construction and major road retrofitting. Um, so that's been huge. Right. Um, but uh, it's not a done deal. Here's the thing is we always got to go back and see what's working, what's not. We always got to strive to evolve the systems. Uh, because something I helped uh, push through and form with the city was a commercial property water harvesting ordinance. So uh, with that, um, we uh, um, it's now mandated that new commercial properties uh, have to provide at least 50% of their landscape's water needs from freely harvested on-site waters. Nice. Uh, nice. And a lot of developers hated that. Like, we don't want that. That's going to make things more expensive. We don't understand how to do that. So Ann Audrey was a, working with the city at the time. She's a great 
um, colleague, uh, collaborator, and uh, she uh, um, talked with the developers and said, well, okay, what if you don't need the expense of a tank? What if it's all done with passive earthworks, basically shovel work or backhoe work? Um, and everything can be seen. It's all on the surface. Uh, then the work's very cheap. And basically, you're grading the site anyway to get rid of the water. Now you just regrade it to keep on the water. So the cost doesn't increase. You just do it a little differently. And the city did a lot of calculations and showed, look, this, is, this won't cost you more money. In fact, it's going to save you more money than it's going to cost. Hmm. So by, by addressing the developer's concerns, uh, that went forward. And it passed. Um, it was very successful. Uh, in getting passed. But uh, we have been finding that uh, the city hired me to do a, an assessment of how things are performing. And uh, it was a little troubling. Um, mm. Most of the sites were not working uh, as designed. So uh, looked into it and we found that what was happening is the city required five to six plan sets but sometimes the water harvesting only appeared on one plan. Hmm. So they maybe wouldn't even inspect the right plan set. Oh. And know, there, yeah. there also wasn't any city staff inspecting the implementation of the water harvesting right. on site. So sometimes they'd have all these basins, but they were all higher than the hardscapes. Oh, like geez. It's supposed to drain to them. You know, I remember working for Barnabas Kane in his landscape architecture office for a couple of years. And, you know, there's commercial developments would be required to do a plan with the landscape architect. And so yeah. we'd go and spend all this time sourcing all the right plants and be like, okay, we want to put these native plants in and creating these really elaborate planting schemes. And, you know, the in the parking strip of the uh the uh you know airport shuttle or whatever the the dollar store whatever it was and then i would drive by some months later after installation after we did these plans the plans are approved and they wouldn't ha have installed what was on the plans at all they yeah. just went and replaced all of the plants with the ornamental typical landscape plants that are you know most commonly found in those types of landscapes and it's like so i see where you can have this great plan but if there's not the system to uh, inspect and refer back to those plans, then it was just a nice idea. Yeah, and so that's all depressing, you know, when we see uh, those examples where things did not go as planned. But here's the positive in all this, is that um, it's amazing that the city did actually hire me. So right. there are people who care in the city system. And... Uh, so now many more people within the city are aware of what's not working, what is working, and how we can fix that which isn't working. Because all those recommendations were made and all those examples were shared. So there is now movement in the city to address it. It, it hasn't been addressed to the extent it needs to as of yet, but we're moving in the right direction. And it points to me that when we're trying to change a system – our job of educating will never end, hmm. okay? And the other thing that will never end is our need to evolve our own understanding, uh, those of others, and how we do that collaboratively. Uh, because, um, you know, something like the demonstration site that my brother and I did in our neighborhood works great because we're holding the vision, we're tending to it and stewarding it on a regular basis. We really care. We get the whole picture, but when you get a contractor coming in doing something to plan, they might have a different interpretation or idea. Or maybe that contractor does it great, leaves, another contractor comes in to do the maintenance, but they don't understand the, the vision. So um, really the work that I feel I'm doing, and I think a lot of this permaculture-related work, it's how do we change culture? Hmm. And so we have to considerably continually be thinking beyond ourselves like how do other people perceive this mm. uh, um, and uh, what what juices them what drives them mm -hmm. you know how could they contribute to this so I was speaking to a Tucson water um, employee who uh, I had the opportunity to uh, to train up uh, in green infrastructure and water harvesting 
And uh, he's a great guy, and he's super excited about it. And he said, you know, before you showed me how those street side and in street water harvesting basins, those water harvesting roundabouts or traffic circles work. He said, I thought they were just traffic calming. I didn't know that there was a water component of that. Huh. And here he works for the water utility. But um, he, you know, he's got so many concerns with his family, his kids, that he never saw that aspect. And then when we showed him, said, well, look, you know, if you, if you sink the circle, the, the planted area, the earth, the dirt area of the circle, so it can receive the runoff, you can reduce flooding and irrigate these plants for free. So it's not just traffic calming, it's flood control, it's stormwater quality enhancement, it's uh, heat island abatement and all that. He was like, you know, explodes, his mind explodes. <laughs> He's like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's so easy. It's so simple. It makes so much sense. And they're like, right. And he said, <laughs> but the... But he said, I never knew until uh, you showed me how to see that. And it, it, it really was kind of a slap to my face, a good slap, where I realized, wow, you know, I always underestimate how much we need to work on educating and communicating with everyone and, and show, because we, we see what we see, right. <laughs> but we forget to look through other people's eyes and, uh, and experience. And so we have to continually strive to do that. Hmm. Now, one thing, one other piece to this that you mentioned, but it seems like it's such a potent piece. And for other people wanting to do these types of projects and catalyze their communities, you had to have had really big uh, community support just to get to the level where you're influencing the city. So would you talk a little bit about how the just your neighbors were catalyzed by your activities and how you sort of grew the population of people to the tipping point where there was actually like all of this involvement and and which probably translated to some degree on the pressure you know in terms of the city's actions sure so uh um when my brother and I moved to the Dunbar Spring neighborhood on the north side of downtown Tucson, uh, it had a really bad reputation for high crime uh, and whatnot. Um, although in its more distant past, um, a lot of the community's leaders had come from it. Um, it was uh, it was the minority neighborhood um, because back in the days of segregation and all the. Uh, um, you could only get loans to buy a house if you were of, of color to certain neighborhoods, and this is one of those. And the, we had the the black school in the days of segregation where the, the African-American population would go. Um, it was actually a great school because the African-American community ran, um, you know, stepped up and ran the school. Um, but when that closed, um, it closed – well, it got desegregated in the 50s and closed in the 70s. That's when everything really went downhill because uh, it almost became an inner city jail for DUI offenders. Hmm. Um, you know, strange decision to turn a inter-neighborhood school into a, a prison. <laughs> uh, and um, They didn't have to change the building that much, though, probably. Well, yeah. Well, actually, the, the, the original part of the school is – not the typical neo-penal type architecture. Um, but uh, thankfully that was um, stopped in the late 90s um, or mid-90s uh, by a coalition of the school alumni, the Tucson Urban League, the Juneteenth Festival Committee, and the Neighborhood Association um, bought the school for $25 with the intent of turning it into an African-American cultural center, museum, and uh, community center. Um, and that transformation is still underway. Uh, but part of that was um, we got a grant for the neighbors to meet with the facilitators and decide, hey, what do we want as a community? Okay, and so that was another instance where people said, hey, we want more trees. We want a community garden. Um, we want uh, less speeding traffic in our streets. Um, so uh, we – we didn't come out of left field suggesting that we do this tree planting program. Um, that was coming from multiple directions within the community. And we had all these great meetings and opportunities to, to talk and see what we all want and get to know people face to face. But I got to say that tree planting project 
that enabled me to meet well over half the residents in the neighborhood face to face. And that was huge because I would just go door to door saying, Hey, would you like a tree? I got a grant. It's free. (laughs) Um, and, uh, they're like, well, who are you? You know, what's going on? And, uh, we start a conversation. We, we break through walls and get to know one another. So, uh, um, that was real helpful because a lot of people were grateful for the help in getting the trees. Um, I'd meet a lot of the elderly neighbors and would help them with other things like fixing their cooler and whatnot. Um, would connect uh, handy man, handy women to those that were in, in need. So all that started to build social capital. And then I ran for and became neighborhood president uh, for two years. Um, and that enabled me to expand relationships with other surrounding neighborhoods. We created this project called Building Bridges, where we realized there are these barriers to inter-neighborhood human-powered uh, uh, connection. So we're surrounded by these major roads. It was not safe just to cross the road from one neighborhood to another on foot or a bicycle. So um, we, we all met and discussed, hey, what are the problem areas? Where would we like to make things better? Um, met with designers and cre- created a plan. We t- took the city. And it's been getting implemented. Because what had happened before is there'd be a new road widening project proposed. And the city would say, what do you think? Wanting us to give their rubber stamp. And so then it, the road became even more difficult to cross. So we were sick of responding to that kind of stuff over and over again. So with this building bridges plan and project, we were proactive. And we said, no, this is what we want. So mm-hmm. you, you respond to what we want. Mm-hmm. We want narrowing of the streets. We want it to be easier to cross it. We want um, refuge islands in the middle of the street where pedestrians are safe. Right. Uh, so on. Um, and... Almost all of that has since been implemented piece by piece, year after year, anytime there's a road fixing project or, or whatnot. So, uh, so when we illegally cut the curbs on a Sunday morning, I was freaked out. I was worried that maybe we get fined, penalized. But uh, I kept thinking, well, you know, I've got a lot of people that will back me up on this. Um, and I'm not doing this in a self-serving manner. I'm wanting to reduce flooding. I'm wanting to, uh, to grow a neighborhood forest that can shade and feed people um, in a sustainable way. And we've been talking about this in, for meetings for years. Right. So um, I knew people were into the big idea. And uh, so, uh, so I, didn't, I didn't get hit or punished. Um, and then when we took it to the city, um, I had the backing of all these neighbors saying, we want to do this. It's currently illegal. We want you to give us a means by which it's, it's legal. Mm. Okay. So, uh, all that helped. And then as we went for further with this work, um, about that same time, I released my water harvesting books. And uh, a couple of years prior to that, Ann Audrey had created and released a water harvesting manual for the city of Tucson. So both these publications were a means by which city officials and the public on their own time, in their own home, safety of their own home, could expose themselves to these ideas, get more familiar with it, rather than being confronted in a public meeting where they're like, People are demanding, hey, we want this. Do you know what we're talking about? Like, well, you're coming out of left field. What are you talking about? <laughs> and their defenses are up. So um, that was super helpful. And then other organizations like the Pima Association of Governments that have been trying to improve stormwater quality realized, hey, a lot of what they're doing is in sync with what we're trying to do. Uh, so more, more collaboration started to form there. Nonprofits such as the Snorn Permaculture Teaching Guild, the Watershed Management Group, um, were teaching water harvesting. And I was giving public talks every week all around the community uh, just to expose people to the ideas, the potential. So people's fear threshold dropped as their familiarity increased. 
Hmm. and their exposure to this increased. And so more and more people started implementing projects around the city. And when uh, where we find the hot spots of water harvesting now, now that things have been legalized, incentivized, and mandated, is in those neighborhoods where we had those early pioneers. Because neighbors could just walk out and ask their neighbor, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing all that digging for? And then they would explain. And uh, like, okay, we'll see what happens. And then they do see what happens. And they see all the vibrancy that grows from it and how their water bill doesn't go up, it goes down. I'm like, okay, I think you're on to something. I, I might want to try this too. And they've got a, a source of information right there on their block. Right. Um, whereas you go a block away and you don't have anywhere near as much going on because uh, – People don't walk as much as we might think or hope. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, so we really got to have this stuff scattered everywhere um, for maximum exposure. Yeah. Um, so that was all huge too. How have you seen other people really making broad and spreading changes in their projects in their areas that are either similar or different from what you've done? Yeah. Okay. So um, I I really tell a lot of the story of a village in. Uh, called Laporia in, in in Rajasthan, India, which I had um, the fortune of of visiting after reading your reading it in your book there as well. Yeah, and you and you've done some videos on the work. You've been there, so yeah, it's uh, amazing. Link to this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, I had the opportunity in two thousand six, two thousand seven, to go to the International Rainwater Harvesting Conference in Delhi, India. And uh, I had met uh, a gentleman uh, virtually, uh, Sri Padre, who I like to call the uh, Wendell Berry of India, because hmm. um, he's a farmer that's a big water harvesting advocate, and he's a journalist, and he writes stories about water harvesting throughout his country. And uh, so I, I met him face to face the moment I stepped into the conference, and uh, I just knew it was him, even though, and he knew it was me, even though we hadn't seen photos of each other. And uh, it's like, sure, he's like, Brad, hey. <laughs> and, uh, so we embraced, and then uh, I said, look, I'm I'm here on a on a mission. I said, I want I want to find the Mr. Peary of India. So Mr. Peary was an African water farmer who had turned a wasteland into an oasis just by watching how the water flowed on his land and figuring out how to mimic natural patterns. And I figured there was something similar in India. He said, oh, I know just just the place, but it's it's not one person. It's a whole village. And uh, so uh, met some of the folks there at the conference and then went out to visit their uh, their site afterwards. So we drove out, and it was just a bleak area of Rajasthan where we found that uh, many of the trees had been cut down. The soil was bare. Uh, people were cutting down trees to make charcoal. Um, there was uh, a lot of building projects that were paving over once fertile soils. And uh, water it was not infiltrating as it once did, so wells were going dry, and uh, a lot of people and animals were migrating out of the area. But uh, when we got to Laporia, everything changed. It was super green, it was lush, and we learned that uh, Laxman Singh, uh, he uh, is, is a leader in his village, um, he had been so upset by how things were being degraded in his youth that he went throughout India visiting other sites that were harvesting water, um, turning things around, revegetating their forests, um, bringing life back into the soil, uh, and creating more of a sponge-like soil that would absorb the rain rather than drain it away. And he came back to his village inspired, but realized the strategies he learned elsewhere, he couldn't apply in the same way in his village. Because slopes were different, soils were different, their farming practices were different. So he just started, and, and I think we all need to do this. You know, we all need to tweak things to the unique conditions of our own site. So he realized these big uh, swales and berms that the government had put in would concentrate water along these linear strips next to the berm. And they'd get grass growing there, but nowhere else in their gradually sloping pastures. 
So he created a system he calls chokras, or um, they're like these huge boomerang berm type things that uh, spread water out over a much wider area. And uh, it's been amazing. They've brought back their pastures and the grass. They now have over 30 different species of grass growing. Um, but the thing, so there's all these details of how they did the work, but the thing that's most interesting is when he tried to make this happen, no one in the village would believe him. They're like, ah, things are bad. They're not going to get better. Well, you know, being, being there and having talking to, um, Jagveer Singh, which I believe is his brother because yes. he had passed away and Jagveer told the story about how his brother came out and he had maybe one or two other friends with them. And they said, we're going to go repair this big traditional pond. And one of the reasons that everybody laughed at them is because the cast that they were in was not a cast that did manual labor. And everybody kind of laughed and said, you don't even know how to use a shovel. You don't even know how to dig. Ha ha. Yeah, we'll go see. You guys will be back by lunch, you know. And they went out there, and the first day they went out and they came back, and then the next day maybe another person went out there with them, and you know they kept going back. And once people saw what was actually happening, that they were actually making progress and repairing this big water collection uh, structure, you know, he said, I don't know what the time period says, but by a certain period there was a hundred people out there with them. Yeah, you know, cause, and that they they proved their worth and they proved that they actually did know how to use a shovel yeah. in spite of their cast, right? Well, and and just to expand on that a little bit more for your listeners, so uh, they, they get, they have these long dry seasons, but then they'll get uh, big monsoonal rains in the monsoon season. So they have these uh, hand-dug uh, massive reservoirs that capture the runoff from the monsoon storms. And these are typically above or within the village. And then all their agricultural fields are below, from which they can dole out the water. So uh, it's silted up over the decades. And people had forgotten who dug them. (laughs) Because the folks that dug them had had died out. Um, Though there were still stories in the family, they realized their relatives had done it. But when it silted up, people, as so often is the case all over the world, they would try and put blame on others or the responsibility on others. And they said, well, uh, we have to get the government to do it or we have to pray to God and God will do it. And so Laxman and, and Jagvi are like, no, we have to do it. This is our <laughs> village. This is our reservoir. And so they stepped up and with their example started doing it. And then other people joined in. And it was then eventually the whole village joined in. And that's what gave people the confidence in him and in themselves to see, oh, we have the power to change other aspects. We can also repair our degraded pastures. How do we do that? And they had all these meetings of, well, how would we do that? What do we need to do? And so the the village made group decisions of, well, we got to stop cutting down the trees. We have to allow them to grow. We have to actually broadcast greater diversity of seed that the shepherds can collect as they're tending their flocks um, and you know, making other decisions such as this. And, uh, and then, just like us with our street-side curb cuts, they didn't get it right at first. <laughs> they had to make some changes, and they watched through the seasons, and then it got better and better. And then it got to the point that things were really thriving, their water table started to go back up. The well levels started to go back up, become more resilient. Um, And they had uh, much more grass and fodder. uh, And people and animals stopped migrating out of the village and started migrating back in. And where I think uh, Laporia has gone further than so many is they're really good at – as. uh, Yogesh, one of our guides, said, uh, work, work, joy, 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 joy. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they will uh, have these celebrations where they celebrate those that have really stepped up and, and done great work. They call them the diamonds in the rough. Um, and uh, so people are recognized for innovating, for stepping up, for stewarding more. Um, and then they create these around... Uh, uh, 
regional festivals that are already happening, these events where they invite other villages or they go to the other villages as a parade uh, and they share what they've learned and they have meetings and say, well, how can you do the same? What are your problems? How can we solve, help you solve those? Um, they, uh, um, and then they have these great ceremonies where they have tree plantings and then they tie these bracelets from people's wrists to the trees. And they say, you know, you, your family, they're dependent on you and you're dependent on them. So look out for one another. Uh, so they really go the extra mile of doing that cultural change and actually making the regular celebration and education all one. Yeah. And, and also the, the religious, uh, infusion of religion as well, where, um, between there and also Gravis Jodhpur, another organization who I went and saw a lot of their water harvesting structures, um, each each new water harvesting structure is is given a name, and yeah. oftentimes there's a temple built, and like it's it's sort of infused with this holiness that yes. has you know religious significance, and I guess that's really easy to do when you have a, a homogenous culture, in a way, where everybody has a similar you know they're all they're all Hindus in this area. Um, and uh, there's also the, the, a nonviolence, uh, a deep nonviolence that is infused in their um, in their culture. There's this story about that Jagveer told me about. Uh, these trappers came, snuck in, and killed two rabbits. And when the people the next day came and they found the remains of these rabbits, that people had actually come and killed rabbits on their land. It was like this whole village had this mourning. They had an all-night funeral mourning the death of these rabbits. And then they sat and they hid in waiting for the next night. No one came back. The next night. But two nights later, after these guys had eaten the rabbits, these are just wild rabbits that they'd caught. They, they they snuck and they caught these guys and suddenly the whole village was there and they had to pay restitution and do all this forgiveness. And it was this very, very big, significant event that they're still telling stories about years later about people coming and killing two rabbits in their village, you know? So it's like living in our gun gun culture here, that seems like very yeah. foreign. Yeah. Well, I also like that they so often their so-called punishments are regenerative. So um, if you are caught, if you're a villager and you're caught cutting down a tree in the common land, uh, one of the native trees, your punishment is you have to plant and care for ten more. <laughs> so the uh, so the punishment is actually gonna grow a more and uh, vibrant forest. Right. Um, and, uh, you're literally going to help plant that forest. So your blood and sweat is going to be, uh, your, a deeper investment yourself. Um, so I, I really like the way they've, they've thought through a lot of the social elements. Do you feel like uh, you've translated any of this into your work? I mean, you know, for me, it's, it's, I mean, my experience in India is India's, it's just so vastly different from the U.S. I mean, it's sort of like as close as you could get to a different planet within our same planet with how the culture operates and everything like that. How do you, how do you translate that to this context here in the U.S.? I mean, have you thought about that? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. So we, we incorporate celebration as well. Um, you go to Burning Man, and there's lots of celebration there. So how do you bring that back home? So... Uh, and I don't think you have to have a homogenous uh, uh, religion or, or culture per se. We just have to find common values and aspirations. So um, that's what. So this, uh, my neighborhood's diverse, but it's even more diverse when I moved here. And so, and a lot of disagreement. I mean, the neighborhood had split into two factions uh, and created two separate neighborhood associations in the same neighborhood just before we moved to the neighborhood. So, um, but with the tree planting and all that did a lot of healing because people didn't have to meet at the neighborhood meeting and everyone wanted the trees. 
So it was a great way to bring people together. And then when they realized the money they could save with the water harvesting and all, that was great. They could reduce the flooding. That was great. But what really stepped it up is when we uh, started showing people how they could utilize the food from these trees they were growing. So we're growing a lot of native mesquite trees. And we uh, got a, ha a hammer mill that could grind, rapidly grind the mesquite pods from the mesquite tree. It's kind of like a native carob tree uh, into sweet, edible flour, nutritious flour. And so we did that around a pancake, mesquite pancake breakfast. So even if people didn't harvest, didn't have the trees in front of their house, they could come taste it, see how good it was. And like, yeah, this is awesome. Hmm. So, uh, and we did that right in the middle of the neighborhood, the community garden and mini nature park and orchard. Uh, so where we had a lot of these passive water harvesting things. So people could come see firsthand, learn, taste the food, interact, see the flower, taste the flower. And more people got excited about that. We'd share information. Hey, you know, we're going to do the annual neighborhood tree, rain and tree planting in the next couple months. Do you want to be part of that? Just put your name down here and we'll give you a call when we get closer. So it was a great way for people to see, wow, the, the value and potential of these trees planted in this way is so much more than I knew or how, how I've been planting trees or selecting trees. And then we started having workshops on how you use other native trees that we implanted um, and uh, understory plants. Uh, we had bake sales and stuff, so we showed other foods that can be made with these plants. So it's not just pancakes. We've got mesquite baklava, mesquite tamales, uh, even people bringing mesquite beer, dog, mesquite dog biscuits and stuff. It's a, we're inviting the community to innovate and show what's possible. And then we later came out with a great cookbook, Eat Mesquite and More, a cookbook for Sonoran Desert Foods and Living that showed how you can plant and utilize mesquite and over 20 other um, abundant native food plants. Uh, and then all that's tying into the rich cultural lineage and heritage of the place. So you've got these uh, Mexican-American families, these old cowboy families, these Native American families. That That's all part of their family lore. Um, and that's what grandma used to make. Unfortunately, in the recent uh, present, uh, the younger generations have had lost interest and a lot of that had been forgotten. But it revived some of that interest. Hmm. So, um, yeah, that was great. And we'll even do a thing where we'll uh, we'll just say, hey, let's this weekend let's do a choya cactus flower bud harvesting workshop. And people come over. They're like, why? Well, what is this? What's this about? I thought choya cactus just got stuck in my face and my, <laughs> my dog. What's um, you can eat from it? It's the pico de gallo choya salsa, and like my God, this is incredible. Hmm. And I'm like, yeah, well, and here's how you can just take a simple cutting from the cactus, put it in a pot of soil or directly in the soil where you want it to grow, and you're going to grow this food right outside your door or gate. Hmm. So we generate the forest at the same time, and we plant that cactus within or beside a water harvesting basin. So we're planting the rain, and we plant the plant. And we're infusing them in their mouth, and they're harvesting how they, too, can make these foods and mm -hmm. enjoy these foods. Yeah, so they're making a, a deep connection with their palate, with their stomach, and all their senses, plus yeah. the physical and the communal. Yeah, that's great. So we're basically coming from the same general ideas of how we can have more life in our communities, supported by the water the air, the soil that's already there. Um, but we're just coming at it from different ways, different senses, and hoping something's going to stick. And then once it starts to stick, people see the value of the other aspects and perspectives as well. So what are some other examples of your travels around the world that you've seen of, of uh, traditional water harvesting structures, the revival of traditional water harvesting structures, and the, and the cultural and political, social aspects that surround the revival of these structures? Yeah, so um, I had a great opportunity to travel around a fair amount in the in the Middle East and 
well, Africa as well, Asia. But um, I'll share a couple of stories from uh, the Middle East. So um, the it used to be very common that if you were to build a house or to start a farm, you would start by planting the rain. Um, so uh, it was very common to create these these oya shaped these these round underground cisterns. What country uh, are you talking about right now? Uh, this is throughout the Middle East, okay. but primarily, but let's say I'm in Jordan at the time and I'll okay. tell the Jordan stories. Uh-huh. Okay. So, uh, um, you find these abandoned all over the countryside. And in fact, very often when people are digging the foundation for a new house or planting a tree, they, they hit these all the time, these old cisterns, hmm. but they're usually filled up with rubbish and soil because they've, they've long been forgotten. Um, so that we've forgotten the potential that's there. We've forgotten that people have lived for centuries just on rainwater uh, in, a, in a dry region. Um, and people think they have to be dependent on pumped-in city water. So uh, what's great is a number of NGOs out there, uh, they thought, wow, well, we're finding that in all these communities, even in the capital of Jordan, Amman, that people are running out of water. Because the the city's growing so fast, and the the water infrastructure can't keep up, and it's too inefficient with leaks, that very often you'll have the water system go out for three weeks or more. So there's a law that every home has to have a water tank hmm. that they can fill up, and so they'll have water in, in times of of no running water. But it's seldom uh, uh, what's the word? It's um, they, they, they seldom um, enforce that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, these NGOs, they thought, well, people are hitting these ancient cisterns all the time when they're digging their home or planting a tree in their yard. It's already built. What if we help them clean it out and patch it up? And it's working great. And I got super excited when I heard that. It's like, wait a minute. You mean Roman and Byzantine era cisterns uh-huh. are working just as well today? <laughs> and you know, people are digging them up all the time. Like, that's my fantasy. I'd love to have a Roman or Byzantine cistern in my yard um, and bring it back to life. So, uh, so I went and um, people are so proud of these. There's some villages where they refuse to serve a guest any uh, tea uh, that is used with any water other than their rainwater, because hmm. that that is the water of kings and queens. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and uh, oh my God, it was so good! It was the best tea. It was the best water. It got to have the water that hadn't even made into tea yet. Um, and they would tell these stories. They're like, yeah, before we would constantly run out of water. Now we never run out of water. Mm-hmm. And this is the best water because this is the water of Allah. This is the water of God. Huh. This comes from the sky. It doesn't come from a pipe that's tied to a utility bill and isn't even reliable. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, and I then got to go to Jeddah, um, Saudi Arabia, where they only get two and a half inches of rain a year. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, they are desalinating water at huge expense. Uh, and polluting the air of Jeddah um, with all these uh, oil-burning power plants uh, running the very energy-intensive uh, desalination plants, which are turning seawater into freshwater. Um, and uh, there's, we'd read daily how all the uh, people that are falling ill because of the bad air quality. Um, and uh, the ever-rising cost of energy. So, uh, like, man, that is not going right. Yet, we see water pouring down every street. Like, what is going on? So this is a humid, uh, dry climate, because they're right on the coast, they're right on the sea. And everyone's running air conditioners. So the air conditioners are basically taking... uh, they're pulling the moisture, the humidity out of the buildings and people's respiring bodies and stuff and just out of the air. Hmm. And, and they're just draining that water into the streets. Hmm. So that's distilled water that they're just getting rid of. And so 
uh, everywhere I was going, I was like, this is insane. Why isn't anyone using this? And then finally I come upon uh, this in the old part of town. Um, there is this uh, three-story building with all these apartments. And someone had put funnels and garden hose to the drain of every air conditioner huh. and sent that into the courtyard garden. So their whole lush courtyard garden was irrigated just with the water coming from the apartment unit's air conditioners. Huh. And it's like, why isn't everybody doing this? Uh-huh. And the guy there is like, yeah, why isn't everybody doing this? <laughs> um, and uh, so uh, that was amazing. You know, it's just that's, that's there. That's available to us. We just got to shift our mindset. And uh, the, then I also had the opportunity to go to uh, one of the oldest buildings of, of, um, of a royal family in downtown Jeddah. And uh, Sami, he was uh, the histor- head of the historical society there. And uh, he invited us to tea, David Eisenberg and I. David's with the Development Center for Appropriate Technology um, here from Tucson, too. And uh, we were with a State Department-sponsored trip. And uh, um, I had met Sammy earlier when we were giving a presentation on water harvesting and green building to the city officials. And he said, look, you've got to come have tea at my place at this. And you have to see how we historically have harvested water here. And I said, oh, yeah, it's great. And, he, and then I get there and I said, Sammy, you got to show me the cistern. And he's like, no, no. We have to have tea and stuff first. I go, no, you don't understand. Well, these State Department folks, they just run us from one site to the next, and we never have a chance to see the cool stuff that we uh-huh. hear from people. And he's like, don't worry, don't worry. I, I know how to work with these people. So I was nervous. Didn't think it was going to happen. We go up to the top of the building. It's sunset. We're drinking tea. It's phenomenal. And then the call to prayer happens. So from all directions, all the mosques are getting this beautiful Arabic singing as they're doing the call to prayer. And it's like, oh, my God, this is so picturesque. And then sure enough, tea's done. The State Department folks say, well, we got to get going to the next engagement. And I just looked at Sammy. and said, Sammy, come on. You promised me. And he said, don't worry. Follow me and run. <laughs> we go running down the stairs. The State Department officials chasing after us, wondering where we're going. And uh, we go out the door and to the mosque across the street. Uh, we're running alongside it down the street. And then he takes me into a dress shop. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And uh, he takes me all the way to the back of the dress shop. And he pushes aside a red dress. And there's this hidden door. And he said, duck when you come in. And then we enter, and we entered into the massive cistern of the mosque that was, um, has been there ever since the cistern was built. So this is centuries old. Wow. So every building in the old quarter has a cistern in the basement. Hmm. They harvest water off the roof and the surrounding street. Hmm. And so what blew my mind there is this thriving um, uh, beautiful old town Jeddah. Uh, they this was a thriving city on just two and a half inches of rain a year. That's wow. pre air conditioner and all the condensate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and that showed me. People say, well, there's no sense in harvesting water in Tucson or elsewhere in a dry climate because there's not enough water. I said, look, if you can have a thriving society on two and a half inches of rain a year. The drier you are, the more sense it makes. Mm-hmm. It's got to make the most of every drop you've got. Yeah. And if I can, I just want to quickly tell a story. I want to come back to the Tucson area. It's not just the rain. We have to look at our once used waters. So um, some, I'm just really lucky, I think, that I've grown up here in Tucson because a lot has happened and is still happening here. But uh, – um, it used to be that it was illegal to harvest gray water in the state of Arizona. Um, and then it became legalized, but it was such an expensive permitting process and it was so complex, the requirements, that no one did it. And uh, so in the 1990s, there were only two applicants for a gray water harvesting system in the whole state of Arizona. Wow. Yet... The University of Arizona, Val Little with uh, Water Casa um, and other researchers did research and found that over 100,000 people were harvesting gray water 
just in southern Arizona alone, uh-huh. despite the law. So people are giving the finger to the state, basically saying, well, forget your complex, expensive system. We're just going to send a drain out back and harvest this water because we've already paid for it. It doesn't make sense getting rid of it. So uh, Val then did uh, further um, research, and she looked at, well, just how much gray water is a typical household generating? Like, you know, after people use the water once, washing their hands, body, or clothes, and then send it down the drain, how much is it? So she found on average, a single person was producing 40 gallons of gray water a day. Wow. Or let's say a household of four would be around 140 gallons per day. Okay. So in a year, this household of four is generating 51,000 gallons of gray water a year. Wow. And uh, so that can irrigate over 17 native food-bearing trees for free Mm -hmm. or a higher water use tree like a citrus tree, six um, abundantly bearing orange, lemon, grapefruit trees. Mm. Okay. If you kept it around instead of sending it down the drain. So Val took this information of the potential of how much water there is um, along with all this research they did of all these people, these hundreds of thousands of people doing the gray water harvesting illegally, they studied a number of them and they said, well, is there any health risk here? And they found as long as people are following common sense, there was no significant health risk. So with that, they went to the state legislature and went to the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality and they got the harvest of gray water legalized in a way that there's no longer any permit, no inspection, no fee, um, as long as you follow these common sense guidelines that were informed by the research they did. Um, and that completely shifted it. So instead of having hundreds of thousands of people out of compliance, immediately people were in compliance unless there was a complaint by a neighbor where they weren't following the common sense guidelines, such mm-hmm. as maybe they let their gray water drain from their property to the neighbor's property. Okay, that's when the hammer comes down. Right. Or they're letting it sit, creating a fetid, stinky pond instead of integrating it into the soil and utilized by plants. That's when the hammer comes down. So uh, um, it was great that that law was changed just by, again, looking at, hey, what is, what's the potential here? And how could, where's the simple fix to meet these other needs of water scarcity and whatnot? So by changing that law... Um, the state of Arizona became uh, an example for New Mexico. New Mexico similarly changed its law. West Texas did the same. Uh, and more are doing as such. Uh, and again, it's not a set thing. In January of 2018, uh, the laws were revised yet again to make it even simpler and easier to harvest gray water. Before, you, it was difficult to harvest drinking fountain gray water. Now it's mm. no problem. Before, it was not as easy on commercial sites. Now it's no problem. And all those revisions I've, I've put in the Greywater chapter of the new edition of Volume 2. Um, but I, I wanted to share that because, uh, you know, whatever we can make change wherever we find ourselves. And I just think it's great that here, Val Little, um, a water conservation advocate, she stepped up and then partnered with researchers at the University of Arizona, um, created these great collaborations. Uh, so you can do this in your backyard. You can do it gorilla style. You can do it um, in, from an institution. So, so how, how can people learn more about your work, Brad? Yeah, so uh, check out my website, harvestingrainwater.com, and go to uh, – Go to the store section of my website because I've got the brand new, revised, full-color editions of my award-winning books, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands Beyond, Volumes 1 and 2, available at deep discount uh, on the website. $10 off each book. Buy them as a bundle. You get another $5 off. $25 off. Cheap on Amazon. If you buy it at my website, and not only that, you, um, you're buying it direct from me. No middle person's taking a cut. So it enables me to fund the generation of more 
books and more free resources on my website. And I've got to say, I am right as you're speaking, I am paging through the third edition of volume one. Um, I have all three editions and the color pictures really add a lot. I must say like this is if you already have the second or first edition, it's that's not a reason to not. I would say it's it's a definite upgrade. It's a very distinct upgrade. And there's also more information. We are looking at it pretty intensively because we're basically using this as the course curriculum for the online rainwater harvesting course. So myself and Jamie Wallace have been going through this book pretty deeply. And uh, I must say that um, it's definitely uh, a really great upgrade, the third edition of this one. So just just uh, there's my Amazon testimonial for you right there. Thank you for that. (laughs) All right. Well, hey, Brad, it's been so great um, talking to you and hearing these great stories, connecting with you again, and I look forward to more. And thanks for all your really inspiring work. You bet. Thank you. All right. Have a great one. I'll talk to you again soon. All right. All right. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to Earth Repair Radio. I'm Andrew Millison, and you can find more episodes on earthrepairradio.com.